Welcome to ACS Synthetic Biology's podcast for April 2013. I'm Ranjini Prithviraj, Managing Editor of the Journal. This month's podcast will highlight articles published in the latest issue of ACS Synthetic Biology. Join us every month to hear from the authors themselves and to learn more about the rapidly growing fields of synthetic and systems biology. Check out the April issue of ACS Synthetic Biology online. It features four new research papers and a meeting report on the first annual winter Q-Bio meeting in Honolulu, Hawaii that was held in February this year. We are now joined by Eric Henderson, Professor in the Department of Genetics, Development and Cell Biology at the Iowa State University and Founder, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Science Officer of BioForce Nanosciences. Eric is a senior author in one of the papers featured in this month's issue. Hi, Eric. Thank you for being here with us. My pleasure. How are you doing? Good. To start, could you tell our listeners a little bit about the DNA origami method of designing 3D DNA nanostructures? Sure. There was a landmark paper around 2006 from a man at Caltech named Paul Rodeman, who was a computer scientist who discovered that one can take single-stranded DNA, a long strand, and then using a bunch of little short strands, cause it to fold into a desirable shape. So he built a whole variety of two-dimensional shapes that way and coined the term DNA origami. The whole process is, of course, based upon the ability of DNA to hybridize to its two complementary sequences and form the canonical DNA helix. And what are its limitations? Limitations. Well, the primary limitation of the original method is that it was dependent upon a large single-stranded DNA molecule as what they call the scaffold upon which one could construct these more complicated architectures. Typically, a bacteriophage scaffold from M13 was used, but then that creates the restriction that one can't do multiple and more complex syntheses or assemblies in a single reaction. And also, the scaffold is a limited nucleotide length, and so if one wants to build larger, more complicated structures with a single scaffold, it becomes a significant impediment. Now, your manuscript reports a new method for creating these DNA nanostructures. Could you give us a brief overview of your method? Sure. In retrospect, it looks ridiculously simple, but it's like paper clips look simple when you look at them in retrospect, but they're a great invention. So the idea here was, how can we take advantage of this ability to fold a large single-stranded DNA molecule into a defined shape, two-dimensional or three-dimensional, but then somehow mitigate that or eliminate that requirement for that large single-stranded molecule and do the whole process with just short sequences that we can literally purchase online. So our approach was to take a virtual version of that long single-stranded scaffold, then define the architecture that we wanted in the computer, and then after defining everything and getting all the small molecules designed and created, go in and strategically put NICs in the large single-stranded scaffold so that it then is comprised of also an ensemble of small DNA molecules. And the NICs are positioned so that they should allow the backbone of the DNA to persist and not disrupt the architecture of the larger structure, but allow us to then order those molecules, which we call scaples for scaffold staples, the other molecules being called staples. We can order them online and then mix the staples with our scaples and get the same end result except that the backbone of what used to be a long linear molecule is now nicked at several hundred positions or so. And finally, what's next? Where do we go from here? It depends whether you're an applied scientist or a basic researcher, but in terms of where do we go from here in the real world, 
there seem to be two general directions that are productive for using DNA self-assembling systems. One of them is therapeutics and one of them is diagnostics. Therapeutics refers to the ability to create a drug, or in this case a drug delivery system, which was done by a fellow named Sean Douglas and his colleagues, where they built a activatable DNA capsule that when it bound to a particular target of interest, released a product that was carried inside the capsule on command, and that the capsule was all built by synthetic DNA self-assembly. And the other approach is to build devices that are extremely robust and extremely cheap, but can report the presence or absence of various pathogens or other metabolic markers of disease. And that's one of the directions we're taking in trying to build a little device that has moving parts and little reporter systems built into it so that when it interacts with a pathogen in the environment, it will say yes or no, it is or is not present. That was very informative, Eric. Thank you, and thanks again for being here with us. Yes, my pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. Next, we are joined by Kevin Trong, Associate Professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering and the Institute of Biomaterials and Biomedical Engineering at the University of Toronto and Senior Author on another paper in this month's issue. Hi, Kevin. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. To begin, could you tell our listeners a little bit about where the field of synthetic biology stands currently with respect to the development of various cell-based therapies? I think synthetic biology itself started off with characterizing parts. So these parts could be promoters or these could be genes, but that's still very important. But as we assemble all these parts, we can begin to think about how to use these parts to program functionality into the organisms that we're interested in. And I think a good area is cell-based therapies. And it's a good area because there really isn't very much programming that's done in cell-based therapies nowadays. It's kind of basically boils down to two types of things that people do. One is either to transplant a cell. So you could reprogram the cell into either a neuron or a heart cell and transplant that. Or People also think about engineering cells that produce proteins, for instance, in diabetes. In certain types of diabetes, people can produce insulin. So maybe you could make an engineer cell that produces these extra insulin. But I think those are kind of passive. The cell doesn't really do anything. When I think of cell-based therapies, uh, another approach is to make the cell active. That is, uh, for instance, if you have a tumor, the cell can actively seek out the tumor and then destroy it. In your current manuscript, you describe the development of a set of proteins to program cells to target and eliminate tumor cells. How exactly did you do this? Going back to the idea of targeting a tumor. So what happens uh, when a tumor is formed? So when a tumor is formed, it basically grows larger and larger. And once it gets to a certain size, it exceeds its ability to get nutrients and oxygen from its environment. So instead of using what's called aerobic respiration to generate energy, it goes into anaerobic respiration. So in anaerobic respiration, it produces a lot of acids. One of the ways you can identify that you add a tumor, like for instance, if you engineer a cell, and one of the ways you can identify that the cell is actually at a tumor is that the area around the tumor is very acidic. So usually the, the pH is about 6. There are natural proteins that recognize this low pH. So there was one protein called that's found in the rabies virus, which is on the coat. So one of the ways that the rabies virus gets into the cell is that it recognizes that when it gets ingested by the cell, and uh, once it's ingested into the cell, I guess the bubble that it goes into, the liposome that it's in, becomes more and more acidic. 
And then from that acidic nature, it, this protein that's on the coat of this rabies virus called VSVG, it recognizes this acidic environment and fuses itself with its carrier and releases the virus into the cell. So we can harness that, this protein called VSVG, to, to do the same thing. So if we put this protein VSVG on the coat of our cell, then what we can do is when the cell goes into a very low acidic environment, this engineered cell that we made, it can fuse with the tumor, which also produces a low pH environment. So that's one way it can identify and fuse, but we want to do more than just fuse with the tumor. We want to actually destroy it. So if you have an engineered cell and you fuse it with a tumor, you don't either want the tumor cell or the engineered cell. So you want to basically destroy both cells. And a good way to do that is through a process that's also endogenous to all cells. If you activate the right signaling pathways, you can turn on a cell suicide mechanism. So this is called apoptosis. And one of the good things with apoptosis is that when the cell dies, it doesn't signal any inflammation. So there's several ways that the cells can die. This is kind of a stealth death. So it dies and the other cells around it don't really know. And you can do that by activating a protein called caspase. So putting it all together, you can identify the tumor by its low pH environment and then fuse with it. So creating a big cell that includes not only the engineer cell, which you don't want, and the tumor cell, which you don't want. And then once all together, you can just activate a mechanism that kills the giant cell, both the tumor and the cancer cell. And what's the next step? What do we have to look forward to? So the two proteins I talked about, these parts, they are useful for identifying and killing the cell. But we need to figure out a way to actually get the engineered cell there. And if you were to program a cell uh, and you inject it into, uh, for instance, a cancer patient, that cell has to find where the cancer is. And that's the other part that we need to assemble to get the final cell, which is the one that seeks and then identifies that it's not a tumor and then destroys both itself and the tumor that is of interest. So our lab has been actually involved in trying to figure out this other part of the pathway, trying to find it. And actually, we've published some stuff in ACS Synthetic Biology about that. So one way you can do it is basically using a different set of proteins that are involved in migration and making these calcium-sensitive. Right. So one great thing about calcium is that there's so many different things that can be wired to it. So you can imagine there are certain factors that are excreted by the cancers, and we can follow those factors by rewiring that receptor that targets these factors that then produces a calcium signal that then drives the migration. And I think by putting all these different parts, how to get the cell to the tumor site and fusing with the site and then destroying, we can begin to engineer a cell that does the final purpose. And that will involve engineering cells that are not the types of cells that we're currently engineering them in, but actual cells such as blood cells, which naturally are going around the body, identifying foreign agents and, and destroying them. That's great, Kevin. Thank you. And thanks again for talking with us. You're welcome. To learn more about the authors of the manuscripts in our current issue, please see the Introducing Our Authors section on the web. This month, we feature two young scientists, Devita Mathur and Seema Nagraj. Read the section to get a young synthetic biologist's perspective on their research. That's it for this month's show. Join us again next month for more ACS Synthetic Biology highlights and interviews with our authors. To learn more about the journal, please visit us at www.acssyntheticbiology.org. Thank you all for listening. Until next time, goodbye.